0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're here to talk about the Orioles prospects today. Joining us over the phone is our good friend John Mioli. John's the Orioles beat writer for the Baltimore Sun. He put together the Orioles top 30 for us this year at BA. John, interesting season up in Baltimore, to say the least. Uh, 115 losses, complete and total teardown and rebuild. After the season, Dan Duquette and Buck Showalter are both fired. Overall, where do you see the Orioles uh, right now, just kind of the, the state of the franchise, both from a player perspective, what's coming up, and just you know the front office perspective?
1: Well, I think everyone's really in the same boat. First of all, thanks for having me on. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure. Um, I think everyone's kind of in the same boat player-wise, you know, front office-wise. They're really looking at everything in this operation, whether it's the coaches, the development staff, the scouts, you know, analytic, group players, you know, who's getting better and why they aren't. They're looking at everything to really see how it got this bad this quickly. You know, this is a team that was up until, you know, the second week in September last year in the hunt for a playoff spot, and everything just went so badly so quickly that they're in part diagnosis, diagnosis mode here. Excuse me, part diagnosis mode. And part, you know, who's going to be the person the person to, to, to stop this and get the Orioles back on the right track and the way that some of these other teams have?
0: There's no question. I, I do think it's interesting how quickly things can change. You'll remember in 2016, this team made the wildcard game. This was the winningest American League club from 2012 to 2016. Uh, one of the things that I, has been a popular source of discussion. Is the Orioles' failure to invest internationally for many, many, many years? We've seen that start to change already. This most most recent signing period, uh, as of this recording, they are chasing Victor Victor Mesa, uh, a highly touted Cuban prospect. Uh, I think overall there was a sense that the bottom fell out, in part because there wasn't a lot of homegrown talent to supplement uh, coming up, and I think just seeing some of the players they've chosen to just outright not pursue on the international market who are now playing successful roles in the big leagues, a la Miguel Ahar for the Yankees. There is a sense it set them back, but it seems like they've acknowledged that and are changing their philosophy.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I think that you know, the, the ways that they got there, is gonna, you know, it's going to be depending on who's telling the story as to why they basically went away from that entirely. But at the end of the day, I think they kind of thought it was, you know, it's not the most pure... It's not the most pure environment and market down there in terms of some of the people you deal with and some of the investments you make. And I think they just kind of saw at one point and said, you know what, we're not doing this. This isn't us. And, you know, from a human perspective in terms of, in terms of you know, trying to do right by the kids who are basically being, you know, commoditized, that's a little admirable. But you mentioned the lack of talent they have. This is an organization that doesn't really have any of those those playing throwers that might come out of that market. They don't have the up middle talent playing shortstop, second base, center field that you would get in that market. They Basically, the only infielders that they have in their rankings the last two years, they drafted them the last two years, are acquired. It's not a strength whatsoever. So in getting back into that market, you know Victor Victor Maceau is obviously someone who, when they started acquiring all the bonus slots that they did, people made that connection. I think there's a little bit of an extra emphasis on him is oh, well, if they don't sign him, everything's terrible. If they do sign him, everything's great. But just the fact that they're down there and they're doing this stuff, I know it's like, you know, I caught for writing this last week or so, but, you know, it's loser mentality, and I understand that. But this is a process. That's a really complicated system that they're trying to work their way back in. And this could be seen as being part of these conversations, I think is going to benefit the oils going forward.
0: There's no question. And I remember even speaking with Duquette at the GM meetings two years ago when they were discussing inputting an international draft. Obviously, it didn't happen. Um, but you know it was very clear that it was a, a situation where a lot of GMs were not really comfortable with how business was being done out there, uh, both in terms of how these kids are being pushed. Uh, there, There's obviously been some issues reported with uh trainers and and pumping some of these kids full of steroids in the past and and there are a lot of problems down there and and you're right it's a mix because on the one hand you can say from the Orioles perspective it was admirable for them to say we're not gonna support this, but there's a shortage of talent as well. Um but again they they are starting to get back in and and as you mentioned international talent doesn't happen, you know, it doesn't come into the big leagues for the most part after three years. You know, the Ronald Acuñas and Juan Soda's the world are the exception. Most of these guys, it's a six, seven-year process. And I think that kind of fits with a lot of where the Orioles are right now when you just consider all the guys they've traded. They did acquire a lot of low-level guys, particularly on the position player side in their trade returns. I mean, this is a 115-loss team. They have the number one pick next year. Looking at this system, John, and just where the big league club is, is this a four-year deal, a five-year deal, a six-year deal before you see them getting back to contention? I think
1: I, I would say in the four to five range. I mean, I, when I actually came to town for the last home stand of the series with the Orioles, I, you know, I got to thinking of like, you know, the personnel involved and who was there. You know, that 2011 season when they really bottomed out and traded everyone, and how long it took for them to get back, and how bad some of those seasons were, and it was almost a complete turnover in terms of personnel on field who were a part of that. So as people like, you know, for a an example, not to say this would be his face, but Cedric Mullins, or D.J. Stewart, as they came up in the last couple of months of the season and the Orioles were saying, oh, you know, we have to see what we have in them. We have to see if they're going to, you know, be able to be us in the rebuild, you know, and why in the But Nobody actually said that, but that's how it's regarded. You know, the Astros basically had one player who – played a regular role on that 2011 team that was terrible and started their rebuild, who is a part of the team now, and that's so Dale, too, he's one of the best hitters in the game. Dallas Cuticle, I think, was 21 in their system that year. Their top 10 is full of guys that they traded for in those trades who didn't really pan out, plus George Springer, who they drafted that year. This stuff takes a lot of time, and when you bottom out the way the Orioles have, a lot of these people we're talking about, they're going to get a chance to stick and the hope is that they do, but if everything got to this point because of you know the drafting and the player development and all these other factors that led to everything else not being good, it's hard to say, oh, these guys who are from the same system, who are from the same program, are going to be the ones that need this charge back to the playoffs.
0: And that is an excellent, excellent point. The amount of turnover it takes, in some ways, it's amazing. It was only four years from the time the Astros really bottomed out, traded Hunter Pence and Michael Bourne there at 2011 as kind of the final flourish of that uh, teardown. In some ways, it was amazing they were back in the playoffs by 2015 with just the level they were at. But you're right, the turnover was huge. And and I think for the Orioles, there is a sense that that might be the best-case scenario. But it will be interesting to see, you're correct, how many of these guys actually play a role in that versus how much of it's going to come from the guys they draft next year and the year after and a really really good trade or two those are all things that really will you know provide a shot in the arm as much as you know one or two big trades Uh, with that I do want to get into their top 10 and the guy that is on top of the Orioles top 10 is Yusniel Diaz he was the top prospect they acquired uh, from the Dodgers in the Manny Machado deal uh, you have Eusniel Diaz 1, D.L. Hall 2, D.L. Hall, their first-round pick a year ago, number one overall prospect in the Midwest League. For you, how much of a separation was there between Diaz at 1 and Hall at 2, and was it a clear-cut 1 and 2, or was there some debate back and forth?
1: There was practically no separation in my mind. Um, you know, I talked to just as many people, I think, inside and outside the organization as at Hall, well. As number one as I Diaz, I think when you get to a point of splitting out something like that, this is a guy who's hit pretty much since he got here from Cuba, and only really did it produce in Bowie once he, the Orioles made the trade for him, just because he was, you know, he's getting a little big, he's trying to do too much. He, with somebody who having met him been in the clubhouse, I was actually in the Bowie manager Gary Kendall's office when him. Zach, Pop, Dean Kramer, and Ryland Bannon all walked in there and arrived basically straight from the airport for the first time, you know. And you could tell that you know, he has liked the idea of this Manny Machado trade being him being the piece of like the big piece of it. And he basically spent two months playing like that. I think that there's a lot more talent there than the Orioles saw. But when it comes down to separating, DL Hall did something that no Orioles pitching prospect of his caliber has done, which is you know, get selected in the first round out of high school and get through that first season healthy. This is, there's not a really strong track record of picture pitcher of his talent and his draft pedigree and the oral system making it, you know, pick up three all the way to the big leagues. You know, Hunter Harvey's in the top ten again this year, even though he pitched, like, 20-some innings with more injuries. The talent's always there, but just getting them there is an issue, and I think in separating them, I kind of figured, you know, Diaz could be up within two months next year. GL Hall has a lot more landmines ahead. That's kind of where he separated
0: from me. That's a very good point. Pitching prospects are very, very fragile. Orioles fans, as you mentioned, know that as well as anyone. You know, Diaz is interesting. Uh, for those of you who listen regularly, you know I have the Dodger system. I covered Diaz in twenty sixteen in Rancho Cucamonga, twenty seventeen in Rancho Cucamonga. Uh, followed him pretty good this year. And I think what was intriguing about him, he came over from Cuba. There's still a lot of rawness there. But he's someone who just continued to adjust, continued to get better. And every, you know, one of those guys you came back, every two months you saw him, he's like, hey, he's better than he was two months ago. And it just, this rapid progression kept happening over and over and over. Uh, and I think there's a good makeup there too. Sometimes it gets lost in translation with Spanish-speaking players. Um, but when, when, in my conversations with him, always seemed you know self-assured but willing to work hard kind of that nice balance of of confidence but knowing they need to get better and putting in the work to do so and I mean you mentioned there's strength there's leverage there's speed he improved as a center field defender last year which is normally what happens as guys get older they get bigger and have to go to the corners he did it the other way Uh, I think there's tools there I think there's makeup there and and you know, in his brief time at the Orioles, even though the numbers weren't there, it seemed like all that promise, you know, still showed through it sometimes.
1: Yeah, and that's also, this is also a time of year, you know, coaching staff that sees what's happening and they're trying to make their mark on players, whether it's, you know, say, oh, I, I was able to do X for this player, X for that player, you know, not just for this year's job, but for jobs going forward. So I think it was just a time where the Orioles got these, you know, broad talent pieces and he might have been a little too hands-on if, if, that, if that kind of makes sense i think you know i think that he has someone you know he might end up in big league camp i'm sure he will end up in big league camp next year and just in that environment of just getting to go out and play at a high level and show himself that's where you're really probably going to see the best of him
0: absolutely so we have diaz one dl hall two austin hayes is number four ryan mountcastle is ahead of him at number three Uh, Hayes was the number one overall prospect in the system last year, Uh, had some injuries, did not play well back at double-A. First of all, first question, was there any consideration for Mountcastle or Hayes at one and two, or had Diaz and Hall pretty clearly jumped those guys?
1: Well, I would say Hayes more than Mountcastle for, for that top spot, only because, you know, when you start putting it together, you start throwing names out there, and the order you do it is, you know, Austin Hayes was one last year, and now he's here. He obviously got jumped by Diaz in the midseason rankings because the Orioles made that trade, I believe. Right? As we were all doing those midseason rankings, and the more I saw from Austin Hayes down the stretch, the more comfortable I felt leaving him as high as he was, even though it was pretty much a nightmare season from the jump. I talked to a few people inside the organization now who, who could tell even in spring training, you know, watching him take a D.C. before games before games game even started, they could tell something was going on there with his swing that wasn't there. This is a guy who has great hands. You know, he's a, he's a swinger, but he has a good approach, he has good pitch recognition. So if you try to spin him on the outer half, he can stay out there, he can wait he can go get it. He's not a person who needed to, you know, who needed pull power. He had power because he was able to you know, punish mistakes and basically hit the all field. He, somewhere, In translation, maybe it was a couple weeks in the big leagues getting exposed to major league breaking balls and realizing that, you know, the major leagues weren't the Carolina League, he made some adjustments to his swing that made him, you know, he was a lot quicker through the zone. He was getting started earlier. It was basically somebody who embraced all this watch angle stuff that people like you and I write about and players read about. And he said, you know, maybe this is for me. And it clearly wasn't. Clearly wasn't. Uh, He ended up having a shoulder injury in spring training never really got off the ground played two months played not very well had an ankle injury he came back for august and was back to his old approach his old swing played well ended up needing surgery so i think that's the type of one you almost give it a mulligan on this is a guy who hit 30 some home runs last year went from the carolina league to the big leagues and everybody who saw him liked him and just because he played badly for three weeks in the majors and and then you know, had a season full of injuries and just mistakes, for lack of a better word, this year. It's hard to say that that's not all in there. As for Mountcastle, I know I'm kind of rambling here. I guess that's the point of the podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> Go right
0: ahead, man. It's a lot of good, a lot of good stuff.
1: No, as for as for Mountcastle, I mean, he's someone who he's been able to hit from the jump, and everyone knows it. And it's just hard to put somebody without a position, you know, too, too high. He's going to hit. There's no doubt about it. But when I say he doesn't have, I don't really know necessarily if that means, you know, his position is not third base, which is very I that. I think that's kind of a given. Everyone kind of understands it's not third base. I mean, he, he may not have a position, and that's something that's really hard to reconcile with stuff like this. You have to really believe in the bat, which pretty much everyone does. He's the best hitter in the system. You're just on a pure hitting standpoint. So that's where he ends up being so high.
0: You know, it's interesting. When we talk about players not having a position, that normally means they're big, they're slow, they're stiff, they don't have hands, etc., etc. Mountcastle's an interesting case because he's got reflexes in third. He'll make some diving stops. He's got hands. The reason he doesn't have a position is his arm, which in case you haven't seen it, is really, really, really bad. Like just there's no strength there. There's a lot of You know, we talk about basic throws across the diamond, just the way his arm works, action, strength, for whatever reason, I mean, you see stronger arms out of high schoolers. I mean, that's that sounds mean, but it's the truth. And and speaking with evaluators, I know you've heard it, I've heard it, you know, they talk about, I mean, third base isn't gonna happen because you can't have that arm there. But even in left field, you're gonna have a problem where, hey, if there's a ball down the line, it's in the corner and he has to get to it and get to the cutoff man, you know, in case a runner's trying to score from first, it's going to be a challenge. There's going to be guys taking extra bases on him, running on him, and all of a sudden, you know, in a big spot here in like the 7th or the 8th, there's a double in the gap guy on first, he goes and gets it. All of a sudden, that guy, instead of stopping at third, might be able to score from first, and those little things are how you lose, win and lose games at the major league level. I, I mean, when you have an arm that's just, that's what it is, and that's what it's been really his whole career. What is the sense you get talking from Orioles personnel and opposing scouts what they can realistically do?
1: Oh, I think that I think that the the current party line is that you know there's improvement at third base, and you know he's putting the work in there, and all that stuff is true. And I struggle with this a lot, and I'm sure that. I'm sure that, you know, you guys get it times 30 because there's 30 teams worth of guys like this. You know, this is a kid who's 21 years old, and all he does is hit. All, all he's done his entire life is hit. And there's plenty. It's, it's, it's almost like, which one do you focus on? Do you focus on the hitting part, or do you focus on the part that, you know, he might be a first-base DH type on a team that already has, you know, at the present, three of those and in the long term, too, and he would just kind of be extra in that mix. And so it's hard to reconcile. I think that I think that there is that potential for that first-base DH role, and he'll probably hit enough. It'll put a little more pressure on, pressure on the bat. He'll probably hit enough to do it. There's not really any question about it. If that means the Orioles, you know, long term, as long as Chris Davis around is around, have to put Trey Mancini back in left field and, you know, bite that bullet a little bit, just so you can keep Mal Castle in the lineup as a DH or first base with him and Davis maybe flipping. You you, you might live with that, especially if someone like Cedric Mullins or Ryan McKenna or Usmael Diaz is in center field and you have the Austin Hayes or any of those guys who could bump to right or TJ Stewart, especially if you have better defenders around a mancini or even, you know, possibly a Mal Castle out there in left. It might not be the Orioles outfield that everyone's been cringing at for the last few years. <laughs> this is but true. It creates a lot. It creates a lot of. It creates a lot of, you know, problems. And you know, none of this is his fault. It basically comes down to the Chris Davis problem. But this is the, these are the circumstances they lost to operate under.
0: Absolutely, and and we I will say as much as we talk about so and so's arm, big leaguers hit, and they will find a position for you if you can hit. And as you stated, as Everyone who has seen Ryan Mountcastle, scout, not scout, writer, can say, yes, this guy can hit. He can hit a lot, and there's a sense he will continue to, and they will make room for him in the big leagues somehow, some way. So those are the top four. And then we kind of get into a group of, of pitchers Grayson Rodriguez, their first round pick this last year out of Texas, Keegan Aitken, a lefty who has uh, pitched up to double A, Hunter Harvey, another uh, former first rounder who uh, has had a lot of injury problems. You know, with Rodriguez, Aiken, and Harvey, uh, that's the order you lined them up in. How, for you, what what put, say, Rodriguez at the top of that list? Um, you know, consider, you know, just overall what you've heard about him and, and what makes him, you know, the guy there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just kind of did this last year. It's like you get through that top tier and you say, okay, like, what's the lowest I could put the first round pick, basically. And it's not, you know, it's not scientific. It's not, you know, it's not anything like that. But this is a guy who, he came in with a plus fastball and the potential for four pitches and a frame that looks like he's going to be able to hold up to a starter's workload, a starter's routine. The Orioles love how he came into camp. You know, this is for those you, you guys went pretty hard on or heavy on, you know, writing about him as kind of the pop-up guy of the draft. It's because he basically transformed his body and as a as a um, Excuse me, my cat's going crazy over here. He transformed his body. As a team you know, going into his senior season, added a bunch of muscle. He went, you know, kinda of more towards a fastball flatter approach, approach he through a curveball normally. He basically wanted his breaking ball to look like breaking ball as opposed to, you know, be effective. So he so he tweaked some stuff there. And he came right in after doing all that work and, you know, getting drafted eleventh overall and achieving the end game of what he's you been know, working for months and years for, and he came in. He's the same worker down in the Gulf Coast League. the same worker in instructor. He, he impressed a lot of people, just on that front. So you take in the potential for a four pitch mix, four pitch mix, for you know being that workhorse starter that the Orioles haven't really been able to develop, say for possibly Dylan Buttony, Kevin Gausman. I think there's just too much upside there to really deny.
0: But there's no question about it. He was drafted 11th overall for a reason, and in no way, shape, or form was that considered an overdraft by the Orioles. I do want to hit on Hunter Harvey a little bit. Um, story's been well told. Talented, just cannot stay healthy. Uh, again, this year, he, he was shelved. He only threw 32 and uh, 32 a third innings, and they weren't very good innings. Either, either uh, nine starts, 5-5-7 five, five, ERA, um, but you still had him in the top 10, what about Hunter Harvey for you? Kept, keeps him in the top ten.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I'm going down, I'm going down with Hunter Harvey. This is a guy who, when I went and saw him last in 2017, as <laughs> he was coming back from Tommy John surgery, his last his last day of the season down in Del Marpa, his rehab start, and it looked like the old Hunter Harvey. And that was enough for me at that point. You know, when I started doing the initial version of the list last year, so. I'm putting Hunter Hardy first. And a lot of people have told me, like, you can't do that. Like, he has a pitch. But it's a talent level that you just can't deny. And even though he didn't have the best results there in Bowie, he was on a really terrible schedule. I mean, he basically didn't start for two weeks once the season began. You know, he gets called up as, like, emergency, sit in the bullpen and hope our starter doesn't go. Five innings early for the Orioles didn't pitch in the bigs. But got that chance to, you know, come up, but it also took him off turn. He was constantly pushed to the back of the rotation because the Orioles were saving innings for what they hoped was going to be a playoff push at the end of the season. Obviously, that didn't happen. And when Hunter Harvey was in the dugout, and I believe it was late May when he suffered his injury, he was just leaning on top step of the dugout. The foul ball came in, and he, you know, ducked, but his shirt sleeve got caught on the fencing, and he basically, like, Popped his shoulder, so it's the type of thing that, oh. like, in a life of like only can happen to Hunter Harvey injuries. This is another one. Is this something that you penalize him for? There was some elbow soreness again as he got going again, back up, you know, in, in Sarasota getting ready for extended and possibly the fall league. That little stuff did crop up again, but it's like, you know it's clear that there is some durability issues. And it's not because he's still the same whiskey frame kid that they took out of North Carolina five years ago. He's put on a lot of muscle. He's developed. The stuff is still there. He started throwing a cutter in his bullpen session, too. And that's kind of the missing piece that people look at and said, you know, this guy's got a really good fastball. He needs something to keep people off of it because his is not perfect. You know, his curveball can get low-miners hitters out, but he's never had to use it to get high-miners hitters out, change-ups just okay. He could be a guy who... If he's healthy with the fastball, maybe with a cutter, the curveball, the ground ball, out pitch, and enough of a changeup, even if it's in the bullpen, this is impact stuff. And considering how few people you can really say that about in this system, I don't care if you, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't care if you threw 30. Innings or three innings. I think that you have to respect that stuff and maybe give it one last chance.
0: All completely understandable, and it really is amazing. Just the some guys just seem snake bitten, and even when they are healthy, freak accidents happen. And, and no one likes to see that happen to a talented young kid. And uh, we'll, we'll hope to see uh, him come back healthy next year. Moving down a little bit, Ryan McKenna was one of the breakouts of the system this year. Really good at high A, struggled pretty badly when he got up, when he got up to double A. You kept him in the top 10, just even with those struggles. Uh, just in your calls with evaluators and discussions with the Orioles, what was it about Ryan McKenna that made you say, what was it? High A, there is something real there, and he's worthy of being in top 10.
1: I think it's almost, it's almost something similar as you saw last, as we saw <clears throat> excuse me, in 2017 with Ryan Mountcastle. He raked in the Carolina League. He basically. Took an offer at the end of the year to get himself, I think he took an offer at the end of the year to get himself required at bat and still won the batting type of walking away. And then he went to Bowie, and granted, there was a position change there. There was a lot of stuff going on outside of just the bat, but he struggled. And he was back this year, and he was in the form that everyone, you know, long term saw him at. I kind of saw the same thing happening with McCann this year. You know, they couldn't get him out in the Carolina League. It wasn't as impactful in Bowie, but the approach is still there. He can still play a really good center field. In terms of center field defense, he might be the one out of all these guys who's going to stick there long-term, whether you're talking about Cedric Mullen, you know, Diaz, you know, Hayes plays a little bit out there in center field, but kind might be the one that sticks there. And he's more of a guy who is talking to people inside and outside the sum is probably a little more than the parts you can. There's a lot of guys who people might say that about, but I think it's kind of true here, you know. He does everything at least average, and when you put you know, maybe a tick above in defense and if he's able to hit for average, can live with a little less power. And you're talking about a guy who you're happy to put in the lineup every single day. <clears throat> you no, know, I was talking to someone and teams don't really do this, especially a team like the Orioles, uh especially the team in the Orioles' position, you know, he's almost like a perfect complement there to, like, Cedric Mullins, who was I think eight last year. You know, if Mullen ends up only hitting from the left side and McKenna's there from the right side, you have, like, perfect little platoon, like, almost, you know, you can combine those two powers, you have a really good player. I think that McKenna's probably going to get that chance to go back to Bowie. I know he's hitting well in the fall league right now. He can get that chance to go back to Bowie, and he could do something similar to what now Malkath did. Now he's familiar with the level. He doesn't have to you know, you can be a little more relaxed, you maybe get some big league spring training lifts, and all of a sudden, you're there, and you're back to that. I, I, I know that there's all those perceptions, and not perceptions, it's true. The Carolina League can be, depending on where you're playing, an easier difficult place to hit. Frederick especially has a reputation of inflating statistics, but the one Frederick game I saw this year was in Wilmington, which has the exact opposite, you know, impact on hitting statistics and Prime McKenna was a single short of the cycle. So he hit it out of the difficult place to hit it out of. He's got the speed. He's got the approach. I think it was just one of those. guts got to a new level, tried to do too much, and it snowballed on him.
0: Absolutely. No, and and it'll be interesting to see, like you said, the level adjustment when he gets back there. He's in the fall league now. Goes back to A next year. There, there's definitely going to be a lot to worth watching there. Uh, John, before we let you go, I do want to hit the back list real quick. The, Dod- the Orioles acquired three pitching prospects of note in their teardown. Dean Kramer from the Dodgers and the Machado deal, who ended up leading the minor leagues in strikeouts in a breakout year. Dylan Tate, who is uh, the former fourth overall pick. They got him from the Yankees in the Zach Britton deal. And Luis Ortiz, who was uh, a futures gamer and uh, a fairly famous prospect, uh, got him from the Brewers in the Jonathan Scope deal. Kramer, who had the best season and probably the least famous of the three, but had the best season and, again, led the minor leagues in strikeouts, makes the top ten, Ortiz and Tate do not. Uh, just what were you hearing in terms of uh, you know scout scout perceptions of the three of them and, and ultimately what made you line them up the way that you did?
1: Well, I put them in that order. You're familiar with Kramer from all that time you mentioned covering the Dodgers team. He's just the person you watch him, and when you take into account it's his track record, you know, he's basically a swing man, was again getting it done last year, made a couple changes, and he goes out there and he starts dominating. He's a guy who attacks. He's got a little chip on his shoulder. He pitches. He doesn't just throw. It's not overpowering stuff, but the, but the totality of it is really, really effective. And in determining that, I went with the guy who showed capability of improvement. You know, Ryan McKenna, Basically fashioned himself into this. He was good last year in Del Marva didn't get on the radar. He was somebody I wanted to put as one of those, like who's gonna pop outside the top thirty. I went in a different direction. Swogan so we'll missed pretty terribly on that <laughs> last year, But you know, Brian McKenna put in the work and said, I'm gonna do this. This is what I have to do to get to this level. Dean Kramer clearly put in the work and improved. Somebody like Keegan like skipped over before. He improved. He's gotten a lot better. And there, there comes a time you're separating all these guys who are, you know, average to maybe a tick above to a tick below in terms of the grades. and The stuff varies, but, you know, the outlooks are the same. You just got to, at some point, you have to give a tiebreaker to those who aren't what they were three, four, five years ago. Joe Tate and Luis Ortiz are talented pitchers with good arms, but if you go back and read the reports and things people were saying about them when they were drafted, all those things are still true now. And it's not, it's not totally lost on me that they were involved in these trades and they were slotted into the Orioles' rankings where they were after the trade. And they are regarded the way they are because of where they were drafted and because of the cachet that goes to that. Here I am, you know, standing for... Hunter Harvey, who can't even get on the mound based on one good year in the South Atlantic League five years ago. So I guess this is slightly hypocritical, but at least there's unknown there. I'm not sure how much unknown there is with Luis Ortiz and Dylan Tate. Dylan Tate could have three-plus pitches on his day, but he doesn't often have three-plus pitches when he's out there on the mound competing for you every five days. Luis Ortiz has gotten by with the way that he is physically, and with some of the limitations that he's had, but it seemed like it got a little, it got past the point of, you know, him and the Orioles being comfortable with where he is physically right now. If these guys end up bullpen arms, and Dean Kramer ends up starter, it'll be because they were showed the capability of improving, and that's something I just felt like needed to be rewarded in a process like this.
0: And I think it's very, very fair. Again. Guys get better at different times, and we've seen pretty clearly Dean Kramer is getting better. You know, Dylan Tate and Luis Ortiz have both been traded twice each now. Both of them at various points have drawn very, very mixed reviews even early on in the process, Tate especially. Uh, It'll be interesting. There's talented arms there. Both can bring in a little bit. Both have shown flashes. But um, it's interesting, looking even at our scout notes throughout the year, I think you're completely right. I mean, this is it might not go against the the common prospect thought because you're right, Tate and Ortiz were high picks with these pedigrees, but you talk to people who are actually watching the games and evaluating these players. Not that Dean Kramer is a future Cy Young Award winner or anything, but there's a sense that, yeah, this guy, there's a there's a little more comfortability that hey, he might end up in a rotation where these other guys you're waiting you've been waiting for it to click for three, four years now, and it's just never really clicked. It's a little bit of frustration.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I saw granted this is an unfair look. It might not be the best look, but I feel like it was a general I feel like generally I saw what a lot of other people saw after me. But Dylan Tate's first start with Bowie with the second half of the double header that Kramer pitched first. So maybe Tate went first with Kramer. I saw mean, them pitch back to back. And Tate was coming off, you know, he had a hamstring injury, he was on the DL, he got traded. Took a little while to get him back in the rotation. He probably hadn't pitched in like 17 days. Kramer had already made one start. He 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 was in the groove a little bit. And you just saw such better, you know, I saw a better approach on the mountain, Kramer. I saw, you know, better stuff, more distinguishable stuff. Tate, everything kind of looked the same. And not in the way that you want it to, where you know, everything looks the same and then one dips one way and one dips the other way and well, you know then the same goes. It's not like it looks the same at a tunneling standpoint. It just all kind of generally looks the same even crossing the plate. It was just kind of hard to it was just kind of hard to figure what he was doing. He had and it was the first thing what was pointed out to me is every single start he just had one bad inning essentially. He if he was going five, he had four good innings and one bad inning. But seeing them back to back, I kind of thought that day. So, you know, kramer has got something going on here, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to lose that moment. You know, those drives home that day, trying to figure
0: out what I watched. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And 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 again, it's not like you saw a blip. That's pretty much in line with what has been the case throughout twenty seventeen with both of those guys. Well, John, uh, that'll wrap up. Uh, thank you so much again for. Uh, joining us and uh, putting out the top 10. We always appreciate your great work. And uh, folks, you can check out the Orioles top 10 online at baseballamerica.com. You can also read all about it in the issue. There's some bonus content in there. Highly encourage you to go pick up the, uh, the print issue from newsstands. For John Mioli, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody.